Malachi. We're, look, we're in the book of Malachi. If you don't know where the book of Malachi is, you want to go through the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. At the end of those 39 books, right before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find the book of Malachi. And we've been in this uh, now for, uh, this is our ninth week in our series where we are looking at Malachi, an ancient truth for modern times. And if you haven't been with us and don't know much about the book of Malachi, Malachi isn't a very positive message. We're all about positive messages, aren't we? We all want to hear good news. Well, Malachi isn't much about good news. God is uh, displeased. He's angry with his people. He's especially angry with those who uh, call themselves the priests, the Levitical priesthood, whose job it was to make sure that the people's walk and the people's sacrifices were right before God. And yet it seemed that the people found themselves doing other things. They had defiled God, or I'm sorry, they had defied God. They had defiled themselves and they had destroyed relationships all around them. The text tells us they had grown weary in their service. And they asked God sarcastically, where are you? Where is your judgment? And why would they ask that? Because it seemed that God was blessing. In fact, he was encouraging the evildoers to continue to sin. He says in our text last week that he delighted in evildoers. And so what do they do? They find themselves breaking faith with one another, thinking, well, we'll do as our neighbors do. We'll do as uh, the evil nations around us do. We'll divorce our wives. We'll uh, break the covenants that we have with our brothers, and we will give up on God. So what is God's response in our text? How would he counter such accusations? The people seem to have a point. Sinners are happy. The people of God are sad. We begin to look at our ministry and we see that it goes nowhere. That was one of their things. It's, it's weary to do the service of the Lord. We, we're not getting anywhere. And then he looked, and the people looked and they said, and God's justice seems to have vanished. The people bring forth a good point. They say, where is God? If man was just writing the book of Malachi, Malachi would have ended at verse 17 of chapter 2 with the question, where is the God of justice. Where is he? It seems that God is on some celestial vacation, that he's not concerned about the things of our world. But I'm so glad that man did not write the book of Malachi. In fact, man did not write uh, the scriptures. This is the very word of God and God gives his answer. His answer is found in the first verse of chapter three. So let's look at what is written in Malachi, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. And we'll go through verse 5 for our text this morning of chapter 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. This is what it shares. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied Him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And He is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. And Lord, this is uh, an important uh, subject for us to look at. As we continue to look through your word, we come uh, to this time where you answer your critics. And Lord, we are so thankful that your critics are laid aside because of your truth and because of the answer that you give. Oh, Father, I pray that uh, in our questioning of you, in our critiquing of you, Father, 
that we would always quickly move back to the fear of the Lord that produces wisdom and brings forth understanding. Oh Lord, I pray that we will be a people who will know that you are coming back, who will know that you have not left this earth and your justice will prevail. And that as we learned last week, that patience, one of the attributes that you've shown us, your patience is being revealed now that allows for us to come to repentance and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we look at this great subject matter this morning and we pray that you'll receive glory and honor, not just through our understanding of the text, but in our applying it to everyday life. Spirit, give us the needed resources and the needed power to be able to do that so that we will bring glory and honor to you and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Where is the God of justice? The people asked. Why is it that seems that God delights in the sinful activities of man? How is God going to answer that question? He answers it. And he says, I am sending a messenger. Now I wonder in verse 1, if the people as they heard Malachi share this thought if there was this ho-hum hush across the crowd, if they sat there and said, here we go again, God is going to send another messenger to talk to us, yet again, another prophet. Haven't we had enough of the prophets? We've had a lot of prophets throughout our day, and nothing's really changed. In fact, some of the times where we've had our greatest prophets have been times of greatest difficulty for the Israelite nation. And God says, I'm going to send a messenger. I wonder if people said, you know what, been there, done that, Let, let's move on. Give me something better than that. In fact, I think it's uh, kind of ironic. It says, see, I will send my messenger. My messenger. In the Hebrew, that literally would have been my Malachi. Malachi, remember, the name of the uh, person that wrote this book literally means my messenger. And maybe they thought that this messenger was in fact this prophet Malachi where he finds himself looking at the crowd and they say, well, you're nothing big. Are you the, the one we're waiting for? Is that all that it is? The people seem to be, if you will, probably bored with this if we look at the context of it. But it stops very quickly because look at what it says. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. I wonder if their ears perked up when they heard the word before me. Now, wait a minute. You're sending a messenger, but, but you're, you're going to send, you're going to come? You're going to be the one that's going to come? We're one, if you will, prophet away from your coming? Well, that's different. That's something we haven't heard about before. God has sent his prophets, but notice what he says in verse one. Suddenly the Lord, not a prophet, <clears throat> the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. God says, I'm going to send a messenger. We see that embodiment uh, fulfilled in the person and work of John the Baptist. We know that the gospel writers speak about this, that he was the voice in the uh, desert crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. We know that to be true. We know that is the messenger that Malachi is speaking about, that the Lord has shared with him. But we also know that now the Lord is going to come. The Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. Now that was news that would rock a nation. All these years, all these prophecies about Messiah who is going to come, about Israel being put on the map, it was all going to come together now. And He was going to come. It was going to be the Lord Almighty who was going to come. He was going to clean house. He was going to bring judgment to the sinners. He would put Israel where they needed to be in the world spectrum. I wonder if speculation at that point was filling the area. Who might it be? Is he here? Has he gotten here yet? What does he look like? What is his pedigree? What tribe of Israel does he come from? I wonder if speculation was rising more and more. Maybe there were some favorites. Maybe there were some good-looking uh, men in the crowd, and they said, I bet you he's one of them. I bet you he's the Messiah. Well, who's the messenger? Some may have thought that Malachi may have been the messenger. And yet we see the Lord prophesy about the coming of his coming, as well as John the Baptist preparing the way. 
Not only do we see in this text the importance of understanding the first coming of Jesus Christ, but we also need to reflect on what we understand as Christians as the importance of understanding Christ's second coming as well. Because we see in the text that there are many parallels between Christ's first coming and his second coming that will happen at a future date. But in both, we see the importance of being prepared, of being ready, of making sure that we are, our houses are in order, making sure that everything is where it needs to be in our spiritual lives to be ready for the coming of our Lord. Now, the people in Malachi's day, as we've learned, hadn't prepared themselves. They weren't ready for the coming of the Lord. They weren't even ready for the messenger who was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. How true is that for us as well in the second coming? Many of us think we're ready. Many of us are looking to the day that Christ will come back, but we're not spiritually prepared. I think it's somewhat ironic in the text that uh, in, at the end of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, it speaks of the coming of our Lord. And yet in the last chapter of the book, in fact, or of the Bible, turn to Revelation for a moment, the book of Revelation. If you look at one of the very last pages in your Bible, in Revelation 22, the last two verses that are written in the canon of Scripture articulate this in Revelation 22, 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, and notice what color is the writing in your Bible? Red, and red means who's speaking? Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Yes, I am coming soon. John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Two testaments in the Bible, old and new, at the very end of both of them, we find out that Jesus says he's coming. And we need to be ready. We need to be like the Apostle John who says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Can you say that this morning? Could the people in Malachi's day say, amen, come Messiah, we're ready for you. We've been preparing the way for you. We're excited for your coming and everything is where it needs to be. Sadly, in churches today, just like in Malachi's day, we find ourselves speaking those words as the people in Malachi's day did, but finding themselves falling short in their readiness to meet their maker. It was said, and this is a true story, at 10 o'clock in the morning on May 19th, 1780, people on the western seaboard noticed a strange haze spreading across the sky. A thick darkness began to settle over the eastern part of the United States. By noon, it had reached Harvard, and the schools were dismissed. School by school, place by place, dismissed to send people home. Candles were lit. Torches were set up in the street. By one o'clock in the afternoon, fear had turned into panic as there had been a premature nightfall had continued to come upon the nation. Thousands crowded into churches to hear ministers expound that the day of judgment was upon them. In Hartford, Connecticut, both houses of the legislature were meeting. One dismissed because its members thought that the world was about to come to an end at any moment and wanted to be with family and to be found at church. The other continued on, though greatly distressed. Finally, one man made a motion. It is time for us to go home and prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord's reckoning. And since that day of the reckoning was about to come, a Mr. Davenport stood up and tried to calm the crowd. He, being a very devout Christian, added these words. Mr. Speaker, if this is the day of judgment, or if it is not, it truly does not matter. For if it is not, there is no need for us to adjourn. But if it is, dear speaker, I desire to be found doing the work the Lord has called me to. For I choose to meet him face to face, doing the work that he has for me. There is no faithless servant, uh, no faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest comes. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let the Lord do his work while we do ours. Bring out the candle so we can continue to do business. 
That man said, I want to be found working when the Lord comes. Well, we know the Lord did not come on that May uh, morning and afternoon. There's speculation. Uh, there's not really known what took place. They don't believe it to be some uh, phenomenon in the, in the sky. They believe that it was a large forest fire somewhere in the area of Ontario, that the haze covered the whole area of the eastern seaboard. And that's the result of this. That's their best guesstimate. But here the people thought, The coming of the Lord was upon him. God's judgment was falling. And people found themselves running and and trying to figure out what to do. And here's a man who says, I want to be found working as the Lord has called me to. We don't find ourselves doing that very often. In fact, what we do when we speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we begin to speculate about uh, the details surrounding it. Many of the details that we have no idea what to understand about them. This is a sad doctrine for the fact that not because of what it means to us and what it means to God, but what it's done to Christians over time. In fact, it's amazing that the second coming of Jesus Christ, that churches split over this, that churches find themselves breaking fellowship with one another, depending on where you put a thing called the rapture and where you put the second coming of Christ. And it's amazing we find ourselves and it doesn't take you long to get on Christian television to watch a a man get on a whiteboard and put up all these formulas and all these numbers and hidden messages in the Bible to to concoct a grandiose plan on the time and date of the Lord's coming. I was on uh, YouTube uh, this last week and I typed in the coming of Jesus Christ. And I was blown away, thousands of uh, YouTube videos on this coming of Jesus Christ. And I saw a parallel that I was quite amazed with in regards to October, I'm sorry, December 12th, 2012. Now, I don't know why they picked out that day, but thousands of people have spent a lot of time behind a computer saying that 2012, the 12th of December, which is my parents' anniversary, that the Lord is going to come. And they even had a guy from NASA saying, well, that's when we think the nearest meteor shower is going to come and all that. And it's amazing. We find ourselves, instead of preparing our hearts for the Lord, trying to pick out the date that he's going to come. Now, here's the problem with that. It goes against what the scripture says, because in Matthew 24, 36, this is what Jesus says. No one knows when that day or hour will come, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son." but only the Father. We don't know when it will happen. Now, am I saying that all speculation is wrong? No, as long as you uh, leave it at that, as long as you don't make it uh, an important cardinal truth when it comes to uh, fellowship with your fellow brother and sister. We can speculate. We can look into neat little thoughts and verses that may talk about things, but be very careful that that is so secondary and so far down the list compared to being prepared for the coming of our Lord. Now we need to understand something about the second coming of Christ. This is an important truth. In fact, I would say it's one of the cardinal truths of us as believers. We have to believe that the Lord is telling the truth when it comes to him coming back. Because if the Lord's not coming back, then he's lying in scripture. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming back. And if we don't believe that to be true, if we say, ah, you know, that that really isn't true and and God's missed it on that one, that every other promise, every other thing that he's laid out in Scripture will then be under scrutiny as well. So if we're not to look at times and dates, how are we then to live in light of this truth? Before we get into the outline this morning, look at 2 Peter for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 3. You're in the book of Malachi, go back towards Revelation, and you'll find the book of Second Peter there about uh, oh, two-thirds of the way through. You'll find the small book of Second Peter. It's next to, of course, the book of First Peter, and then uh, the book of First John. Second Peter chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. What are we to do? How are we to live? It says in verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. What's Peter saying? Be prepared. What's he saying? Get ready. The Lord is coming, and it's time for us to be ready for what the Lord is going to do. Well, what does this readiness involve? In our outlines, we see two things of importance. Number one, The readiness that we have for his coming, first of all, involves a thought. It involves a thought that should challenge us. 
It involves a thought that should challenge us. Notice what Malachi says in the text. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now, those are challenging words. The Lord is sitting there saying, I'm coming. And not only am I coming, but who among you is going to be able to stand? Who is going to be able to endure when I come? These are words of challenge. What does it mean for us as humanity? Well, there's two messages, I believe, that come to two very specific people. Number one, it involves a challenge to unbelievers to experience salvation. His coming will challenge the unbeliever to experience salvation. And what I mean by that is when Jesus says, I'm coming, those who say, I don't want nothing to do with Jesus in Malachi's day and in our day today, if we are to find people that say, you know what? I don't want nothing to do with Jesus. He was a a figment of my imagination or at best he was some historical person uh, in history, a good teacher, but he means nothing to me when it comes to being God or, or to being my redeemer. The coming of Christ says, I'm coming back and I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge. And it brings the question up for anyone in this place who has never trusted Christ as their savior to ask the question, what will you do when he does come back? What is your response going to be? What is your answer going to be when he begins to unleash his wrath upon you, his judgment upon you, his punishment? What is your answer going to be when you stand before him, when you stand before him knowing that he is God and you failed to bow the knee during your life to his lordship in that way? It challenges that. It doesn't say, well, you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences. The coming of Christ says there are consequences that I am coming back and I'm going to come back to unleash my judgment, the scriptures say, on those who have not trusted me as their savior. The second thing we see is it challenges the believer. It challenges the believer to uh, pursue sanctification. Now, if we've trusted Christ, we can stand and we can say, I have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We can hold to that. We can stand before God knowing our sins are taken care of. But the question we must ask is not, uh, am I going to be saved on that day of judgment, on that day of his coming? But is God going to find me at work at the day of his coming? One of the things that my employees uh, get very upset with over at the catering office is when I am gone, I know that, and, and this may be true in your own workplace, that my employees, unless something's really driving them, I will get 80 to 85% productivity when I'm gone. I know that because I'm not around. But what I will always tell them is I'm coming back and I expect this to be done. I want this done. I want that done. I've worked really hard to putting together lists. Why? So they know that there is some accountability when it comes to their uh, working. They can't just say, well, you know what? It got busy. The phones were ringing. The people in the office needed some help. Uh, We had a problem with one of the refrigerators. They can't say that. They know there's a list and they're held accountable to that list when I come back. It challenges us to pursue sanctification. If Christ is coming back, then we've got some work to do. It's amazing to think that Jesus, when he spoke about this subject, many times would speak in his parables about a wise servant and a foolish servant. The wise servant, when the master was gone, who said he was going to come back, the wise servant would be doing all that he needed to to make sure that the master's work was done. The foolish one would would rest on his laurels and, and find himself just kind of going through casually saying, you know, if I get to it, that'll be great. But the master, he may not come back. Maybe his business will keep him away for a long, long time. And Jesus says that is a fool. And the wise one is the one who is constantly at work. For us as believers, the second coming asks the question, the Lord may come back today. And the question we have is, will God come, will Christ come back? Will he be pleased with what we've done? There's a bookend to our work. 
And the second coming is where it's brought into. Now, we see a couple things. The coming of Christ means accountability. It meant that in the book of Malachi. They say, where is God? And God says, I'm coming. And what it means is I'm going to deal with all your ills that you're worried about. I'm going to take care of all the things that you think that I've left beside the way, uh, left on the wayside. But notice what happens. What does this challenge involve? First of all, it involves a diligent and a diligent examination. The thing that we have to do, the people in Malachi's day as well had to do, was to begin to understand what the coming of Christ meant. It meant we needed to look around at our lives and look around at what was going on and make sure everything was up to par, up to where it needed to be. Now notice what the text says. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now we don't understand that in our uh, Western culture. We don't understand that here in America. But in Eastern cultures, the people there would have completely understood what was being articulated. What he's saying is, is someone very important is coming. In fact, it's the Lord Almighty. I'm coming, but I'm going to send a messenger. This was a common occurrence because kings of the East would come to a nation to visit a country. And what they would do long before they would ever show up is what they would do is send an envoy, a group of individuals to come and say, our king is coming. And you know what? This road needs to be fixed. Our king is coming. Make sure your best cooks are in the house because he loves a certain type of food. Our king is coming and we better make sure everything is where it needs to be and people act in appropriate ways because we've got a special guest coming to town. And that envoy would come and would scour the nation to make sure that the king was happy upon his coming so that all would be where it needs to be. My friends, that was the job of the prophets in the Old Testament. They would announce, the king is coming. Get right. The king is coming. Stop living the way your neighbors do. The king is coming. Don't break faith with your friends. Don't break faith with your God. Don't break faith with your marital spouse. The king is coming. And what we need to be asking today is, we understand, we believe as Christians, the King is coming. The question is, have we examined our lives to look and see to make sure that we're ready for the coming of our great King? It was the role of the prophets in the Old Testament. And I would say, I didn't find this in, in any book, but I would say that it's not the role of prophets anymore but it's the role of your elders in your local church. Why? Because the Bible says that there are pastors, there are teachers, there are shepherds. It also says there are evangelists, these church leaders. What are they to do? To prepare the people of God for works of service. What is the job of, of, of my role here and the job of the other elders here? What is our role? To prepare you. So when the coming of the Lord comes, you as a people at Village Bible Church, we're all ready. Our houses are in order. Our relationship with God is in order. And so when God comes, we can be confident at his coming. It involves a diligent examination. Notice what it says in 1 John for a moment. 1 John, if you were in 1 Peter, if you can quickly move over to uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, the book of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28. Why do we have this diligent examination? Notice what it says in 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, continue in him. The King James literally says, abide in him. Why would we continue in him? Why would we abide in him, John? He gives us the answer. So that when he appears, he's coming. John says he's coming. He's going to appear before us. We may be confident and unashamed. We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Jimmy Carter wanted to be the president to the common folk. I don't remember it. I was only about three or four years old during his presidency. But I read through history that one of the things that he loved to do when traveling around the nation was to stop at individuals' homes, people he had never met before. And his thing was he wanted to have dinner with the American family. So what would happen is, is he would go to some random home. I can't believe a president would do this, especially in this day of terror. Probably wouldn't happen. Uh, but he would just go and, and have dinner with people. And one time a man, uh, he knocked on the door, uh, Jimmy, and all the people uh, are watching him, Secret Service, all the people, and he knocks on the door. 
And this man opens the door, they say, and he's got this cut-off T-shirt. There's stains all over it and everything. And he says, hi, my name is President Jimmy Carter, and I'd like to have dinner with you today. And the guy looks, and and the, the history books say that the man looked, and he said, honey, what do we have left? Do we have some leftover spam? And he says, all you have is spam, that's fine. And he says, if I knew you were coming, we would have had ham. But you didn't know you were coming. You know, there's a lot of people like that man. Jesus is coming, and Jesus is going to show up at your door. And you're going to be looking all ragged, not ready for that special guest to come. You're going to ask your wife what you have ready for dinner. And it's not going to be anything of excellence. In fact, it's going to be something uh, that needs some real help when it comes to a dinner plan. And yet, that's where we find ourselves as Christians. Not examining our hearts, examining who we are, making sure when Christ comes, we're ready for him, we're prepared for him, and not just prepared, but John says confident at his coming. How confident are you today to meet your maker? The next thing that we understand is that it it also involves a daily expectation, a daily expectation. Notice what the text says in Malachi again. In Malachi chapter 3, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, now that's an important word there, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come. This word suddenly, I'm sure you understand this, and the Hebrew literally means unexpectedly. I'm going to come. I'm going to be here. You're not going to have seen it coming, but I'll be here. That's what the people wanted. The people wanted God to show up. And he says, I will. But he says it's going to be something sudden. It's going to be something unexpected. Now, the people of Malachi, they probably were looking for someone who was quite regal, someone who who, uh, had lots of money, someone who uh, was looked upon as being the best of the best. And yet, what do we know of Christ's first coming? It was sudden. Who would have ever thought that his forerunner, his uh, prophet would be some eccentric uh, prophet who lived out in the wilderness, wore camel hair clothing, ate locusts and honey, and did a lot of yelling. Who would have ever thought that? Who would have ever thought that he would be born to a poor uh, Jewish girl and that it would involve a virgin birth? Who would have ever seen this coming? The prophets spoke about it, but the Israelites didn't see that happening. Who would have thought that he would have been from Nazareth? What good thing comes from Nazareth, they said. Who would have ever thought it would be a plain-looking man? The prophets said that he would be nothing that we would be enamored by his looks. There'd be nothing about him that we would think would be great. Who would have ever thought that it would be the Son of God? Who ever thought that this uh, Messiah would hang out with sinners? Who ever thought he would be arrested? Who would have ever thought he would have been crucified? Yet that was his plan. And the people had this different idea, this different understanding about the coming of the Lord. And yet God fulfills his promise. He sends his son and they're not sure about it. They don't know about it. In fact, they're a part of the evil plan that, that, that allows him to be arrested, that moves to have him crucified. And here's the thing we must understand. In Matthew 24, just a book over from Malachi, in Matthew 24, we see something that we must be reminded of. And that is the following. I read it before, but it's something we must understand again. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You know, years ago, and not many years, well, years, some years back, I, I was so focused on making sure of all my doctrines that my end times doctrine was most solid. And I found a camp that I liked. I felt that that was the best place to be. And I knew where everything was supposed to be laid out. I read all the books about it, made sure that I understood all the understandings of what was going to come in the future. And as I continue to read and study the scriptures, what I've come to is not a maximum of what you must meet to be uh, right on with me and in agreement with me. The only thing I'm looking for in a brother or sister of Christ is that they believe the Lord is coming and they believe it could happen today. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. You want to have something to break fellowship about? Someone says, ah, the Lord ain't going to come back. You break fellowship, I think, over that. Don't break fellowship where they put the tribulation and the rapture or where they put Nikolai Carpathia as the Antichrist. Okay? 
You can speculate about those things. You can read on those things. That's fine. But don't fall prey to saying, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to be laid out. The people thought, yeah, we understand how you're going to do it, God, in your first coming, and they missed it. What makes you think that we've got it figured out in his second coming? They didn't get it. And the Bible says no one knows the hour or the day. So what are we to do? Our expectation involves three things. You want to know how to live? First of all, it involves wanting, wanting the second coming to happen. In 2 Peter, I read this before, you don't have to turn there again. 2 Peter 3, verse 14 says the following. It says, it's 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ? Don't give me the Sunday school answer, yes, I am. I want you to really ask the question, am I ready for him to come today? You know, when I was younger, I know I'm not that old now, but when I was younger, I know I had no desire for the Lord to come back. My life was ahead of me. I wanted to experience things. In fact, I remember going on a youth group retreat here at the church and our youth pastor and the leaders did a retreat on purity. That's a big one there. Teenagers, purity. I want to go to that and listen how I can't date and how I can't do this, that, and the other thing. And I got to tell you, it was a great, it was a great retreat. I wasn't happy looking forward to going to it. There weren't rides. There weren't, uh, you know, a lot of playtime. It was one of those serious spiritual ones. And my dad being an elder, you, of course, you go to the spiritual ones and we go. And I remember hearing about purity, the importance of, of being pure until the day of marriage. And me and a couple of the guys got together afterwards and we're talking and we made this pact with God. We said, God, we'll make a deal with you. You let us get married and don't come too quickly. And after our honeymoon, come whenever you want. Now, why would we say that? Because there was something on our agenda that was more important than God's agenda. You know, it's not just teenagers who make pacts with God. We as adults do as well. We say, Lord, yeah, you come quickly. Yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But don't come too quickly. We're going to Disney World. Come quickly, but I, I first want to have a child. I want to see what I can make and, and see what it looks like. Come quickly, Lord, but wait until, until I get the promotion. Come quickly, Lord, uh, but wait until the church gets real big and I get a radio problem. But wait, Lord, just wait. Wait. Do you have to come today? Can't you hold it off one more day? We should want the coming of the Lord. One thing I'm learning as I continue each day to grow older, I'm growing tired of this world. I'm growing tired of sin. I'm growing tired of wasting away. Every day I wake up is another day at 32 years of age that I wish I hadn't grown another day. Kids hit me. My wife's got me working. It grows tiring. <laughs> and I say, Lord, I want the day to come when you say I will sit back at the banquet feast of the lamb. I'm so glad I cooked pork chops because I know that's not on the marriage supper of the lamb menu. Someone else is catering that one. I'll sit back and I'll enjoy myself. But I don't know about you, but I hope that there's a sense that you're growing tired of this world, not hating it. We should not hate this world. We shouldn't find ourselves just isolating ourselves and saying, well, the world's so bad and, and, and we're just going to find ourselves some uh, cabin off in Montana. And that's not where Pete went, by the way, but some cabin off in Montana, uh, you know, and, and just reduce ourselves to no contact at all and just wait for the coming of the Lord. Sit out in your chair and say, Lord, is it today? That's not what we're to do. We are to want its coming. We're to look forward to it. But what a reminder, whether in the good or the bad, this is not our home. This isn't it. And whether you're struggling with disease, you're struggling with suffering in your marriages, suffering with, with uh, relationships with people, it's not your end. It's not your home. The Lord is preparing a place for us where there will be great joy and great hope and great satisfaction but also for the good. Don't think that, man, you think this is all that the world has to offer. You think this is all that God has for you. Folks, this is not your home. The Bible says right now we look into a glass dimly, but one day we will see clearly because we will see him face to face. And all those imperfections in this world, all that sin will have passed away. We should want this coming. Second, we should wait for this coming. Titus chapter 2. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Titus, you would find kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says the following. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright lives and upright and godly lives in this present age. Notice what he says. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is this an impatient waiting saying, Lord, uh, you said it was going to be December 12, 2012. It's today. It didn't happen. Is it impatient waiting? No. It's waiting patiently, knowing that God's patience leads to what the Bible says, salvation. That every day we're here on this, on this earth, we should thank God. Yes, we should be wanting His coming, but the other side of it is we should be patient saying, Lord, as we wait, knowing that as we wait, you've allowed another day for another sinner to come to repentance, the book of Second Peter says. We are to wait. Now, why are we to wait? Because it's a blessed hope. It's a glorious appearing. It's the appearing of our great God. What a day that will be when we will be caught up with God in heaven. And we will be there. And He will gather His people together. And we will worship with the angels and all of the prophets of old and the people of old. We will worship with them and glory in our God. The final thing we see is watching. Watching. Luke 21, the Gospel of Luke chapter 21 says the following in verse 36. Luke 21, 36. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life in that day. What day is he talking about? The day of the Lord. That day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. So what are we to do, Jesus? Be always on the watch and pray that you may escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. We're to watch and pray. Why are we to watch and pray? Because the coming of the Lord will lead you to two extremes. Number one, the coming of the Lord will uh, bring your heart to say, you know what? I'm not going to change the way I live. So what am I going to do? I'm going to become a drunk and I'm going to be filled with dissipation, which that means is I'm going to just fill myself with all types of folly. I'm not going to live in light of God not coming. Or what it will do is knowing what is going to come when Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming. It can bring great anxiety. What happens if there's persecution? What happens if there's tribulation? What happens if, if what it means is I can't worship at Village Bible Church anymore? What does that mean if I get put in prison? There are these senses that, that this stuff may happen. And we don't know whether it will happen or not. But we have to be ready for it. So what do we do? We watch and we pray. Why? Because Jesus says so that you will be able to escape all that is about to happen. That word escape there literally doesn't mean that you'll get around it, you'll get away from it, but that you will endure it. One of the other translations speaks of enduring. You'll be able to endure it. Whatever comes your way, you'll be able to endure the coming of the Lord. Well, there's a second thing that we are told this morning, and that is that it's a time, I'm sorry, it is a thought that should challenge us. It's also a testing that should concern us. There's a testing that will concern us. Back in the book of Malachi, I've got to land this plane here, so let's get moving. Malachi chapter 3 says that he's going to come, and he's going to be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He's going to sit and refine like a refiner does with silver and gold, and then he will have men who will be able to bring offerings. In his coming, what is going to happen? He's going to be like a refiner's fire. The idea there is the process of putting metal uh, into a fire to burn away the impurities. Then he says, I'm going to be like a launderer's soap. What does that mean? Well, literally, that means he's going to wash it up. He's going to clean it up. This was a man back in the day who would use a bleaching dye that would remove stains from clothing. Fine illustrations for God to use. Why? Because we see two types of testing when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first type of testing is one that will not destroy, but will purify. Both of these illustrations are quite important. In both cases, the item is not destroyed, but it is cleansed and purified. It isn't lessened, but it is bettered. It isn't done so that it will reduce its use. It is done for greater use. When Jesus Christ comes for the believer, it will be a time 
where we will be purified. It will be a time where we will uh, be cleaned up. Now you say, well, I am cleaned up. I'm justified, meaning I've trusted Christ as my Savior. My sins are not held against me. And that's true. Your legal standing before God is you are righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon you. But we know that the process of sanctification is leading us closer to be more and more Christ-like, dealing with the impurities. And we know that even in the process of sanctification, at the end of the day, we won't be like Christ at the very end. There will still be impurities. There will still be things that wage war within us. And that's why we believe in the doctrine of glorification, that when we see him, we will be like him where those purification time will take over. This is not purgatory for my uh, friends that have come from the Catholic Church. This is not some limbo in between heaven and hell where God does a work on us. This comes at the moment that we see Jesus Christ. We are made like him. The issues of sin and death in our lives are taken away. And that's what he's telling the people of Malachi. I'm going to come in and I'm going to clean up. And I'm going to clean up those who love me. But notice what he says next. He says, I'm going to come and judge as well. Look at verse 5. He says, so I will come to you, come near to you for judgment. Well, that doesn't sound fun. Literally what that means is I'm going to come and I'm going to make my dwelling with you. I'm going to get close to you. I'm going to come near to you. And what that meant was, is you think you got it all put together? You think that everybody else is going to get the spanking when I get there? Better understand, judgment is coming to you as well. It was always fun to watch my brothers uh, get in trouble and my dad to come home with the belt. And I, I always seemed to have a, a morbid curiosity at, at their beatings. <laughs> Except when that belt was going to be directed towards me. I didn't like that. And the people in Malachi's day were saying, yeah, God, beat them. Beat them good. You know, put some stake on that one. Yeah, hit them good. And yet God says, you know what? I'm not just coming for them. I'm coming for you and I'm going to judge you. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought God was going to purify. What God is dealing with is people that with their mouths have said, we love you, God. You're great, God. We haven't defiled you, God. We haven't despised you. And God, time and time again in Malachi's uh, book, what does he say? You say it with your mouth, but you don't live that way. You've defiled uh, my covenant. You've desecrated my temple. You have broken faith with your wives. You've done this, this, and this. And you say you're a priest of mine? You've got to be kidding me. I'm coming near to you. What is he going to deal with? He's going to deal with adulterers. He's going to deal with slanderers, perjurers, sorcerers, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of their justice. This was the moral code of Israel. Don't do those things. And God is announcing to the priests, you've done every one of these things. You find yourself searching after other gods. You find yourself breaking faith with one another. You find yourself desecrating the covenant of my uh, love and my temple and my offering and sacrifice. You've destroyed all that. And as a result of that, I'm coming close to you. What's the, uh, what's the application there? The application, first of all, is, is the question, and, and that is, I throw it up there, Steph, uh, a confrontation. There's going to be two confrontations. I just told you about that. I didn't highlight that in my notes. The confrontation, either to purity or to judgment. The second question we have is, what is our condition before the Lord? What is our condition before the Lord? At Christ's coming, will you be purified or will you be condemned? Are you going to be one that stands there and you are free from sin, not because of the righteous things that you've done, but according to the mercies the book of Titus says? that he has saved you and washed you? Are you going to be free from all that because of what Christ has done? Or are you going to stand before God and find yourself guilty of sin? There's two things that can happen when you stand before God. It can involve a grievous condemnation or a glorious celebration. Let me close with this very quick thought. My dad, when I was about eight years old, told me when I come home from work, you've been a good boy, your grades have gone from, uh, never mind, and, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a gift. We're going to go get you a new bike. And he says, so this is what I want done. I'll be home around five o'clock. And so be ready. We're going to go. And I'm like, yes, dad, you're awesome. I love you. We're going to get a new bike. This is going to be great. And he says, but I got one condition. Make sure your room is clean. No problem, Dad. I'll get my room clean. I'll meet you. I'll be ready at 4.30. Until the neighbor boys say, hey, baseball, let's go. Let's go play. 
And I found myself in one of the greatest baseball games I ever played. Home run after home run they hit off of me. And, uh, and I'm having a ball. And I hear my mom saying, Tim, your dad will be home soon. It's all right. I got time. It's okay. Tim, your dad's going to be home soon. That's all right. I'm coming. I'll be there one minute. Three more times it happens until I hear not, Tim, your dad's coming in a higher alto slash soprano voice. I hear, you better get home now. Who was it? It wasn't my mom. It was my dad. He came home early. 4.32 to be exact. What did I have? A glorious celebration? Uh Uh-uh. A grievous condemnation. My room wasn't cleaned. It wasn't, it hadn't been touched. And what happened? Not only did I lose the bike, but I got grounded from baseball. Where are you going to be when the Lord comes for us? Is it going to be a time to celebrate? We sing the hymn, Oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout for victory. That's true for those who are ready. There will be a time where Jesus, we'll stand before Jesus and say, we did all this. We prophesied in your name. We, we uh, delivered demons from you. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Are you ready? I'm going to ask the guys to cue up a tape as I close our time uh, with a word of prayer. Listen to the words of this song and uh, then the worship team will come up and close our service. Father God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for this time. Father, we thank you for the promise of your coming. Lord, I pray that we will be a people who are ready, that we will be a people who are certain and sure of your coming and our place in that coming, that we will be ready for you so that we may be confident as we see you face to face. Father, that means confession of sin. That means getting right with you. That means humbling ourselves, doing all that Mark sang about in that song, to do right with others, to deal justly, and to walk honorably and humbly before you, our God. Oh, Father, I pray that village would be a prepared people so that when you come, it will be a day of rejoicing. We thank you and praise you and look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.